Yeah. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. You recognize the tomb. Waves of love billowing over me, over us. That's, that's why he's brought us here today, isn't it? Well, our current sermon series is called The Word of the Great King. It's a study in the book of Matthew. It's not just about hearing the word of Jesus, but actually living under uh, the word of Jesus. What we saw last week is that when we come under the authority of Jesus in our lives, we have the capacity to rise above our circumstances. And this week we see also under Jesus, we find an identity that never lets us down. This is a promise of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Let's open up our Bibles to Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 28. If you're in the room and you have a pew Bible, you can find the text on page 798. But wherever you are, I'd love for all of us to pull out the text and uh, we'll put it on the screens, but you might like to follow along on a device or in a book. And if you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read this together corporately as an act of worship. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading God's holy word. Matthew 16, verse 24 to 28. Then Jesus told his disciples, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Please be seated. Truman Burbank had an identity that ultimately lets him down. The Truman Show uh, was a movie and Jim Carrey played the character of Truman Burbank. And Truman Burbank in The Truman Show was the center of his own universe. You saw the movie, remember he lived in this lovely little seaside town, everything perfectly ordered for his own comfort. The whole world seems to revolve around this one charming man, Truman Burbank. And it would seem to him, I think, in the words of Jesus, that he had gained the whole world. But it would also seem to the viewer of the movie in time that he had lost himself, that in some way Truman was a stranger to his true self. He looks one scene at a mirror, draws a circle and says, I hereby proclaim this planet as true mania of the Burbank galaxy. But the truth about this person is that he was a child of an unwanted pregnancy that he was the main character of a television show, quote unquote reality television, that the town he lived in was actually a giant sound stage, that the sky above him was actually a painted ceiling, that the sea around him was, was a moat to discourage his inquisitiveness with lies about his father having died and drowned at sea. His 
whole world revolves around himself until one day it doesn't anymore and things start to fall apart. There's a stage light that just shows up in the middle of the street having fallen from the ceiling. He turns the radio on the car to a station and overhears uh, crew instructions moving the set around in front of him. His wife begins to have a meltdown under the strain of the product placements and the relationship with him. He finds his identity is fundamentally unstable. What he learns is that when the world revolves around you, you have an identity that ultimately lets you down. And this is the lesson that Jesus is teaching his disciples. Let me, let me put it this way. You find your true self when you follow another. Jesus is saying this, the words that we read, he, he actually has no interest in feeding our false selves. Interesting. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now, take up your cross. That thought is as offensive in the first century as it is today, I assure you. Any Jew in Palestine would understand what Jesus was referring to. To them, this was an everyday sight to see somebody carrying a cross. The Roman cross, as you may know, consisted of two parts, a stauros, which is a stake that's put in the ground, and a patibulum, which was a cross beam. The patibulum was already there outside the city, but the the cross beam would be carried by these victims. Jesus was forced to carry his own cross beam. You remember that. Uh, he was unable to carry it the full way through the city of Jerusalem because he'd been so weakened by the flogging. And uh, an African man was conscripted, Simon, to take it. What, a, what an honor it would have been to carry the cross beam of our Savior. And he brings it the rest of the way. So take up your cross. What does it mean? Well, that journey through the city doesn't actually take your life. What it does is it destroys your sense of self. It's a very public declaration that's forced upon you as the victim to parade through your city in front of your family and your people an acknowledgement that the self with which you have been living is coming to an end, that it has failed you. What could be more offensive? (laughs) That's hard to... I mean, today, especially, we we find ourselves in a day where we think that our purpose is really to find ourselves, to celebrate ourselves, to express ourselves, to fulfill ourselves. And Jesus says, deny yourself. Die to yourself. And after his saying of the good news has come, the kingdom is here among you, it's one of his most frequent teachings, actually. It shows up all over the place. So it's hard to dismiss, and I'm sorry I have to give this sermon, right? But it's just there. Deny yourself, he says. Take up your cross, he says. As though this somehow were for us an opportunity. Why? Why would it be an opportunity? Why would we even consider doing it? Unless what I think of as myself is not actually my true self. See, Jesus is leading us to our true selves. In order to do that, he denies himself the temptation to feed our self-deception. If you are my disciple, he says elsewhere, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You find your true self when you follow another. 
Now I know when we think about this passage of scripture, we oftentimes think about suffering and that's, that's right. But it's also about identity. Look at the context. If you just scroll up a bit, you'll see just before this, Jesus has asked his disciples a question of identity. Who do you say I am? He asks them. And they answer, and then he turns right around, and what does he say next? To Peter, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. I tell you, you are Peter, Petros, rock. Identity, there it is. And then he comes right into this. See, the point is, when you discover who Jesus is, you begin to learn who you are. Hmm. I really started to come to know Jesus myself in college. And I've told you this before, but I put on my dorm room door a little scrap of paper with a few words on it. It was actually the question that Jesus asks here. I wrote, what will it profit you if you gain the whole world but lose yourself? It was so striking to me when I came across that question, really for the first time at that point in my life. I thought the whole point of the game was to gain the whole world. I thought that it's only until you gain the world that you really had the ability to discover who your real self was. So I was working super hard on that project. And then this question just pierces my bubble and I want it everywhere in my coming and going. I'm asking myself these questions. Am I who my parents say I am? What my GPA says I am? Who the team I'm on says I'm supposed to be. They call me the crew machine. I don't think it was a compliment. Am I who my girlfriend wishes I were? (laughs) Am I who my art teacher tells me I'll never be? I'm sure they don't do that anymore. (laughs) And then reading the Bible, really for the first time with other students, I, I see what it's like to put oneself under the authority of Jesus and to let him tell me who I am, to let him be the one who gets to answer those kinds of questions. And I hear him say, blessed are you, George, son of lawyers. I tell you that you are blank. And then Jesus begins to fill in the blank bit by bit for me, forgiven, cleansed, holy, eternal, a child of God, an ambassador of the great king. Wow, this is transformational. I'm coming to know myself for the very first time. Back then, I was coming to know the me that you're coming to know today. Jesus was the one who introduced me to him, I mean to me. What I'm saying is that you find your true self when you follow another. So what do we mean by a false self? Let me just take a minute with you on this question. What do we mean by a false self? You hear people talk about that. I would define it this way. Your false self is the self that you see as opposed to the self that God sees in you. It's what you see. Maybe it's what you want to see. Maybe it's what you fear you see. But it's what you see versus what God sees in you. Thomas Merton has been very articulate on on this issue. He's the Roman Catholic monk and the theologian. He tells us we all have a false self. It's the self in which we construct our own identity, our own meaning, and our own purpose for our lives. It's the self that we use to shield ourselves from a universe we fear. It's the self that we'll refuse to be, who we're created to be. It's the self in flight from the freedom and responsibility of being children of God. It's the self that puts our self at the center of our own universe. And Thomas Merton writes of his own false self. I love this. He says, 
this is the man I want myself to be who cannot exist because God does not know anything about him. Isn't that, isn't that great? God doesn't know your false self. Who, what? That's not you. See, God cannot see our false selves and we cannot see our true selves. This is what Jesus understands. This is what the apostle Paul teaches when he says, we see through a mirror dimly or darkly. Jeffrey Schwartz is a neuroscientist, and as, as are some of you. And he, he argues that our false self even shows up in our physical brain. He writes a true story about a young man named John who can't stop checking his phone. He's incessantly in his pocket, right, pulling it out. Because he's dating a lovely woman named Alicia. They've been together for two years. They're faithful and committed to each other. And John is thinking, soon I'm going to ask her to marry me. But he has these doubts. Uh, he has these feelings that at any moment, Alicia's going to leave him. And, and he can't suppress them. So he, he, he goes about in this kind of perpetual state of anxiety. He, he's afraid, you see, he feels he's not good enough and he's afraid that she's going to find out, that it's just a matter of time until she does. So he's worried, looking at his phone, hoping to confirm or, or relieve his fear. If he doesn't get a message from her, then he's got another couple minutes to relax, assuming she's not telling him that she's gonna leave him. This is impossible for John to live with. And it's very hard on their relationship. It actually puts pressure on their relationship. And Dr. Schwartz uh, says, looking at the scans and the science, he says, what's happening to John is his brain is giving him false information. Uh, unreliable messages about, uh, that cause him fear or that reflect a kind of a, a false desire that's inside of him. This comes from his or, orbital frontal cortex, uh, Schwartz writes. Uh, and they're false messages about his self, about a false identity that John confuses with himself. So Dr. Schwartz writes, the reason you cannot stop engaging in unhealthy behaviors is that you have bought into <laughs> your deceptive brain messages and assimilated them into your sense of who you are. I find that so powerful. What he's saying is, and actually to be who you really are, you're going to have to say no to yourself. You're gonna to have to find a way to deny yourself. Now, the, <laughs> in a culture in which we are absolutely, without any sort of narrative of self-denial, we are dangerously trapped in our false selves. I mean, if this is true, we're really stuck because we don't know how to deny ourselves. And in a culture like that, my emotions just become an identity. What I want, what I fear, what I like, what I feel like, that becomes who I am. So we say this to ourselves, well, that's just who I am, or that's just the way I am, or that's the way my, God made me, if we want to spiritualize it. But Jesus is saying, well, how do you know that? How, how exactly do you know that's the true you? Or, or which parts of you represent the real you? I mean, for me, is it the part that wants world peace or uh, the part that wants another Pop-Tart on the couch? I can tell you which one comes much more frequently into my experience. Why would we ever measure ourselves by an internalized cultural norm around success or gender or beauty or strength? 
I've told you before about the time that George Bush Sr. was in a nursing home in North Carolina. He was campaigning for president at the time and he came up behind an elderly gentleman in a wheelchair and he turned around and he reached out for a handshake and he said, sir, do you know who I am? And the man kindly said, no, but if you go to the nurse's station, they can tell you. <laughs> right? So the question is, who gets to tell you who you are? Hmm? Will it be your parents? Will it be your peers? Will it be your ex-wife? Will it be your body? Will it be your work? Who gets to tell you? Will it be your E-Trade account? See, what I'm saying is, if you tie your identity to what you do, or what you have, or what other people say about you, ultimately, that identity will let you down. Those things will come and go. They will rise and fall. And if your identity is in those things, when they go down, you will be devastated. You haven't just lost some money. You haven't just lost a friend. You've lost yourself. You cannot afford to make that gamble. As Jesus says, you lose your soul. So he says, graciously, lovingly, helpfully. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves. <laughs> There's joy in this. And take up their cross and follow me. Do you find your true self when you follow another? And can I say, when you deny yourself? There's one scene in the Truman Show. It's, it's my favorite scene, actually. He's in the basement, the man cave, and he's trying to piece together a face. He's, he's tearing out little scraps from magazines, from pictures of women in fashion magazines. And he's taking like the hair of one or the, the ears of another, the chin or the nose, the eyes. And he, he's pasting them together, overlaying them to, until he can get a face, a, a composite face. It's a recognizable face. And you wonder, what is that he's doing? Well, it turns out he's trying to reconstruct the face of a woman named Sylvia. That's her real name in real life. She enters into Truman's world as an extra, like a short-term actor. But unfortunately, she does not adhere to the script. She inadvertently falls in love with Truman, not the actor, but the man himself. And she risks her life, certainly her career, to try to tell him the truth about himself. He's, that he's grown up in a fake world, that he's not actually Truman Burbank. To rescue him from the self-deception. And all Truman will get is a brief embrace on the beach before the producers in, in Jeeps whisk her away and invent some rationale for what just happened. But those eyes, those eyes stick with Truman. They haunt him. Because he's seen in those eyes something he's never seen in any other pair of eyes his whole life. Love. And the truth about himself. See, when Sylvia looks at Truman Burbank, she looks through him. She sees everything that's not actually him, the, the Truman self. But she also sees through that to the man inside of him that he has never himself even seen. She sees a man who is a greater man than this small world has been able to contain. And, and I just wonder, what would it be like to look into the eyes of Jesus? Just imagine that for a second. 
Look into his eyes for just a moment with the eyes of your own faith. Oh my goodness, what would that be like? What will it be like to look into the eyes of Jesus? Remember, he says in this passage, for the Son of Man is, is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. This is a reference to his authority, of course. He, he comes from glory with glory. He is one with the Father. He's clearly referring to God. This is a claim to divinity, but it's also a claim to visibility. I'm coming back, and you will one day look into my face, and I will one day look into your face, and we will see each other as we truly are. Oh, we long for that day. There's a lot about this in the New Testament. St. Paul writes, your life, your life is hidden right now with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And St. John writes, behold, beloved, we are God's children now, right now, by faith. But what we will be has not yet been revealed. What we do know is this, when he is revealed, we will be like him for we will see him as he is. See how John is imagining what it's like to look into Jesus' eyes and to believe he's coming with his angels and the glory of his father. On that day, you will see the you that God sees when you see what God will be like. Your felt false self will just melt away. Today, your life is hidden with Christ. And can I suggest, this is a difference between seeing yourself in a mirror and seeing yourself through someone's eyes. Just think about that for a second. The Apostle Paul says, you know, we see now through a mirror dimly. The more Truman Burbank looks at that mirror and his bathroom wall, the more he only learns about his false self. <laughs> true mania is what he had ironically called it, true man only sees true mania. But the more he looks into Sylvia's eyes, this woman who loves him, the more he looks beyond his small world to a world well beyond from which she comes that he's never seen. These are not the eyes of an actor. These are the eyes of someone who loves him and sees the substance, the reality of his life. It's like the difference between looking at a fish through water. I hope to do some fishing at some point this summer if I, if I get lucky. Uh, not that I'll catch a fish, but that I'll get to go fishing. That's always the important distinction for me. But when you look at the fish, if you're a fisher person, th through water, what you know is that you're not seeing what actually is. The, the fish is not where the fish appears to be. If you were to be a spear fisherman, which I'm not, and through that spear perfectly, you would miss that fish every time. It's because of refraction. There are two fish, actually. There's the one you see in a certain position, and then there's the real fish. You don't see its location. And so Paul's getting at it. I think he says, your life is hidden with Christ. So he's saying, look, look, don't look at the mirror. That's a dim reflection. Look at me. Look at my eyes. Don't look at yourself. Look at me. You find your true self when you follow another. This is the liberating truth of our text today. Deny yourself, to find yourself in Christ. I, 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 you know, this is a lot harder to do than it is to preach about. Trust me, not that easy to preach about, but it's really hard to do. And I'm still wrestling 
with the question on that college door years ago. I'm sure the custodian's long since taken it down. What will it profit you to gain the world and lose yourself? Today, I still see my false self. That's what I see. I still present it to you, unfortunately. What I will say is having walked with Jesus now for decades is that I'm recognizing it more for what it actually is. And the work that I'm doing today in my own spiritual life is the work of identifying and disassociating myself from the false self. I marvel at how quickly my reputation becomes my identity, how quickly my accomplishments become uh, my identity, how quickly my my failures become an identity. My fears, my self-serving aspirations, they all harden into a sense of who George is or should be. How often I look at my circumstances and I say to them, who do you say that I am? That's the wrong question, right? What part of yourself needs to hear no? I'd invite you to wrestle with that this week. What part of yourself needs to hear no? But if you're gonna pray that through, here's a warning, be careful. Because looking at Jesus is actually transformational. Jesus, this is the reason for that is Jesus does not look at you the way other people look at you. He doesn't. Jesus does not look at you with sentimentality. Now, the reason I can say that with confidence is that Jesus only looks at you and me through the cross. He only looks at us through the cross. That's the only way that he sees us. You could say that he's cross-eyed, although I don't know if that's very respectful. He only sees you through the cross. Not your cross, not the cross beam on you or how well you carry that, but through his cross, the perfect cross of Christ. And so because of that, he cannot see you with sentimentality. He just can't because the cross constantly and always will remind him of the cost of our salvation. It will remind all of us of our desperate condition without him. Right, that we, have, we live lives that are shaped by false narratives. That we're lost in a, a deep emotions that are profoundly disordered. That we live under the spell of principalities and powers, you know, whatever that is. So he can't look at us with sentimentality. On the other hand, he cannot look at us with condemnation because of the cross. Because the cross will always remind him of God's infinite affection for us. That, the, that you, there's nothing you can do to push yourself away and beyond the reach of God's love. This is a God that would rather lose himself than lose you, self-offering God, that there's something about you, even though you don't see it, it's deeply worthy of God's only begotten son, that you've been rescued, that you have been rescued by unconditional grace. This is what we see when we look into Jesus' eyes. And when we see that in his eyes, it starts to change something deep within us. And let me tell you how this works in a Christian's life. If you've said yes to Jesus, this is the dynamic that you're in. It's a little bit like Truman building this composite picture, you know, out of magazine clippings. Just think of that one more time. You know, he's got the cheek from here and the nose is coming together pretty soon. This is what you're doing. You're copying little images from the Bible. I hope you're not tearing anything out of your Bible, literally, but you're you're reading it and and you see a little bit here and a little bit there. And you say, oh yeah, Uh, you know, there's humility. Oh yeah, there's the holiness of Jesus. Oh yeah, here's his justice. Here's his truthfulness. Here's his mercy. And you're pulling these little things out and you're building this composite image of Jesus through his word. You know, you're pasting it together. You're pasting together love and joy and peace and patience. 
generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then you're holding up this composite and looking into it. You're holding it up kind of like you'd look into a mirror, right? But it's, but it's a picture of Jesus. It's come from his word. And when you hold it up and you see something that's there that's not inside of you, then you confess it. You just acknowledge, oh my goodness, that's, that's sin. And that, that's not my true self. Uh, that's a false self. And then you ask the Holy Spirit to remove what in you is false. You tack it to the cross beam that you're carrying. You, you lay that cross beam back on your shoulders. You step back behind Jesus and you follow him in the power of the Holy Spirit. You put on what you see in him as you walk forward. This is the rhythm of Christian identity. Deny, embrace. Put off, put on. Confess, follow. Empty, be full of the Holy Spirit. So you can just imagine this picture that's coming together. Jesus' chin, his smile, his eyes. But now not pasted on paper, but stamped deeply inside of you. In you. You are becoming the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. His identity is becoming your identity. And that's an identity that will never let you down. After all, Jim Elliott, who gave his life for the cause of Christ, once said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we've come to be reminded today by you, this is the story we're in. It's a story that Jesus called the good news. And it calls us to account. It calls us to make a decision about which story we really believe we're in. Not just once, but again and again and again and again. To say no that all that's false in ourselves and all that's false in the world. And to walk by faith into the freedom of your coming kingdom under your authority. And we yearn for your authority to break forth, to restore this creation Bring it to joyful, the very music and laughter of heaven. Can we just take a moment to pause before you and, and allow your Holy Spirit to search our hearts and to examine us, to know us in the way that only you can know us, and to shine a spotlight perhaps on something within us that needs to be overcome. Perhaps we have a reluctance today to follow you in some area of our lives. Uh, perhaps there's some here who've been brought by your Holy Spirit simply because they need to know that no matter what they do, they're completely forgiven to say yes to you for the first time. But for all of us, I suspect, Lord, that you're speaking now about an area of our lives that are meant to be left behind on your cross. Fill us with your Spirit. Let the resurrection power of Christ rise from the depths of our own being. As we said earlier, let us cross out the eye that you will live in us. In your name we pray, amen.